I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Two years ago this week, the federal government announced two weeks to slow the spread, campaign lockdowns and closures that would metastasize into ongoing restrictions on civil liberties that largely failed to control the spread of COVID-19. Thanks to the power of teachers' unions and other advocacy groups, no public institution would be more affected by the shutdowns and subsequent mask mandates than America's public schools. And as a result, Parents got a view into into the education their tax dollars paid for, their children to receive, and they didn't like what they saw. Liberal indoctrination and critical race theory, all while administrators lost focus on the core subjects of reading, math, and so forth. Joining me to discuss the state of education today is Luke Rossiak, author of the new book, Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. Uh, Luke, welcome back. Uh, What have you been up to? Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a busy couple weeks with the release of this book. Um, heavy research project. I worked on it for two years, uh, but you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, this book kind of goes back. It, it starts what we all saw with schools, with the teachers unions and the politicized stuff. And then it kind of rewinds the clock to show how we got there, uh, as well as how parents can identify this stuff in schools and hopefully fight back. So what's the like what's the thesis of the book? What what did um, what did you find? I think the thesis is that academic performance is what the real issue here is. Um, the numbers are terrible. You've got 36 percent literacy rate in schools, 24 percent of 12th graders proficient in math, 11 percent in American history. These are deeply embarrassing for teachers and deeply frightening for our country. Um, you know, these are 12th graders, so by next year, they're going to be voting, they're going to be potentially employed. Um, and if we're not having smart people that can create the next, you know, vaccine for the next pandemic, uh, there are really lives at stake, kind of everything is on the line in, in the short term, really, for our country. And so what I found is that the education industry is obsessed with concealing these numbers so that people can't realize how uh, what poor results we're getting for all the money that we spent. And so I go through, especially since around 2001, when statistics became more common, and that set off this sort of uh, manipulation obsession, where they either lowered standards or found different tactics to obscure the tests. Um, and I would argue that critical race theory is primarily being cynically used. It actually has nothing to do with race. It's just a way to say, oh, well, you don't have to care about those test scores because CRT says tests are racist or objectivity mm-hmm. isn't real or, uh, you know, uh, getting the right answer is uh, an attribute of white culture. And I think even with the school closures, what you saw is this was an opportunity to cancel tests, what they call standardized testing, um, and even kind of um, manipulate grades. I saw a bunch of articles recently that the graduation rate went up during the pandemic and grades went up. And that is like the schools are patting themselves on the back for it. And and that is the total hoax that's been pulled on the American people for for decades. That (laughs) as if anyone could think our kids actually learn more during the school shutdowns. Right. Um, So who's so what's the cause of I mean, whether you're a, a liberal or a conservative, you still want your kids to learn stuff. Uh, so how did we get 
into the situation who is pushing the education system in a way that you could end up with the results that you just discussed. Yeah, and that's a great point that liberals want their kids to learn. Liberals, by and large, don't believe these weird racial ideas that showing up on time is part of white culture. I know a lot of Democrats, I've never heard any, any of them say something like that. Never heard a, a black person say something like that. It's like this weird loony fringe. And I think part of it has to do with the primary system that in local elections, you've got low turnout already. And then in the primary elections for a local down ballot race, you're talking about super low turnout. And so that essentially made the teachers union some of the only people involved. And so teachers began. Um, this gets know, they, this gets back. You know, we've discussed uh, with Max Eden um, what I call the three exploits of for the teachers unions and local elections, which are off cycle races. So they're not in line with, uh, you know, with federal elections or with statewide elections. Um, nonpartisan races so the public can't see who uh you know who is going to be the candidate most likely to share their values uh and then obviously slate voting which allows an organized interest to um you know to control votes and membership of a decision-making body well beyond its numbers in the population yeah and so they started running schools as employment centers rather than uh places dedicated to educating children and you know a lot of parents just voted for whoever was the democrat or whoever was endorsed by teachers because they thought that was like a relevant endorsement rather than a conflict of interest and then you had things like the pta which is also tightly connected to the teachers union where parents thought if i'm being involved i'm just going to go to some pta meetings and they'll tell you what to do and it turned out that that energy was siphoned off into uh the teachers union's pet causes as well and so we really just had a situation that most people of all political parties could not say was good or was even something they would agree with but there just weren't a lot of people paying attention mm -hmm. so I guess we'll we'll start with uh, you know as we go through you've you've said you know you write that special interest groups are quote using our kids as guinea pigs in vast ideological experiments so I think we should go through what some of those key special interest groups are um, I guess should we start with the teachers unions um, sure yeah so so how deeply involved are they uh, you know we know that they do that they're interested in increasing their membership and increasing their dues revenue and increasing their bargaining power. Um, but, you know, how are they involved in this whole ideological program? Well, they uh, are behind things like Black Lives Matter at school, which continues to teach the abolition of the nuclear family, even as the adult version of BLM has walked that back. And even though we know that, um, not having two parents in the household is going to decrease test scores. Uh, they also do things like uh, allow teachers to select which schools they're going to be at, especially, you know, based on seniority, which then minorities complain gives, you know, causes them to not have experienced teachers in their schools. They do all kinds of things that actually exacerbate uh, what they call inequity. And really the biggest one, of course, was shutting down schools. And it was right. funny because, uh, the, the biggest correlation between where schools were closed and where they were open. It wasn't uh, how bad is coronavirus in this area? It was is how, how powerful are unions? And so that meant that especially 
poor and minority kids because they're the ones tending to live in democratic uh, environments. They right, just kind of went with California, Oregon, Maryland, where I live. Uh, and then even within states like Virginia, it was the strongly democratic constituencies that were the most committed to um, that were most committed to the lockdowns. Yeah. And, the you know, and we've seen for years how they've did things like vote down a, um, an initiative at their annual convention. Someone put forward an initiative to rededicate themselves to pursuit of excellence in education, and they rejected that. But they approved uh, an initiative to, you know, pursue like reparations for slavery and push the ideas of white fragility in schools like that. Pretty sure didn't didn't they also? I think it was the NEA uh, resolve to like spend money to do oppo research on people who didn't like CRT. Yes, and then they scrubbed it all from their website when people saw it. So yeah, I think really people got a sense of how strident and how ruthless the teachers are, the teachers unions when they shut down schools, because it was like just to get, uh, you know, work from home privileges or shake down taxpayers for $80 billion, they were willing to inflict extraordinary suffering. I mean, and, I mean, the whole the teachers unions, like their whole thing, their whole selling point to the public is that, you know, we are the voice of public education. And they're, when public education was stretched to its maximum, they basically tried to destroy it. Yeah. Like they I mean, basically, you, like, I mean you, close school, you close schools for a year, that's an existential crisis for public education. And they are in many ways responsible for it. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they use children as shields. They try to pretend criticizing them is, is the same as criticizing children when it's a union. I mean, to be honest, it's not their job to advocate for children and they, they certainly don't, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't somehow right. allow themselves to conflate them, you know, to present themselves as being advocates for children. Right. It's, they it's they speak, they speak for their members and for no one else. And that's yes. fine. I mean, and, and you know, that's fine. That's their ostensible job, but it's our job as the public to realize that. Right. And so they worked with the, the democratic socialists of America to shut down schools through a, a group called Demand Safe Schools, which people thought was like, we can't go back to school until it's safe from coronavirus. They were actually talking about having police in schools. They said police are what makes schools unsafe. Uh, so they basically got a bunch of kids to come out who they had brainwashed through these equity programs and joined their protests. And this is while schools were closed. So they're still in the streets. I mean, they're actually congregating with children. They're just not willing to do so in a classroom. They only wanted to do it with socialists uh, out in a crowded protest. Um, and they bring it's, it's, the it's kids reminiscent. In. It's reminiscent again. The thing that will stick out that I will I will remember on my you know deathbed, God willing, many many decades from now, that when the George Floyd protests started, there was that letter of several hundred public health officials that said actually it's fine to break social distancing for the protests. Yeah, you know, it, it's, had... the sim it's the similar. It's the similar. You know. You have to, you have to do what we say, but we don't have to do it for our political our political agenda. Yeah, I mean, they're saying we're writing our wills and we're not going to die for the Department of Education, bringing out coffins with like fake blood smeared on them, child sized coffins, and then they go to this protest on the National Mall with fifty thousand people. That's like a racial protest, and Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers' unions, up there with her arms draped over Al Sharpton or whatever. Um, 
And so they work with Demand Safe Schools, which is just a front group that brings together the teachers unions and the NEA and the um, socialists. And the teachers unions function as basically a machine for the socialists because they've got these outposts in communities all over the country. And so if you're the socialists, you know, it's not a terribly strong party. Hopefully they don't have really a grassroots operation, but the teachers unions have that localized on the ground infrastructure. And so they complement each other. And the socialists, meanwhile, if the teachers unions just protest for their own interests, it's so obviously just a, a self-serving special interest money grab. But by mixing it together, joining forces with the socialists, they can be like, well, we want Medicare for all and a bunch of people will cheer. And then also we want raises for the teachers. And right. suddenly I mean, it's, that, it's, that was that was the teachers union in Los Angeles uh, in summer of 2020 put out like a whole manifesto of things that they were demanding in order to reopen schools, one of which was Medicare for all. Yeah. And, the, you know, these uh, demand safe schools group, they were asking for the same type of stuff, um, just generic socialist demands. But so that's where I started to get trace the link from the teachers unions to the philanthropic foundations more broadly. And so demand safe schools is a front or a project of um, the Center for Popular Democracy. And so there's uh, in New York City, I tell the story in my book of New York City trying to get rid of Stuyvesant and these magnet schools, get rid of the tests because too many Asians are doing well. And so that's sort of this CRT idea that if there's not enough blacks there or the Asians are doing too well, just get rid of the test. And then we, since we've stopped measuring the problem, the problem doesn't exist. We don't actually have to teach kids in New York City to be to know math. We'll just stop measuring it and get rid of this center of excellence that is a visible manifestation of the status quo. And so you have this lady, Maya Wiley, that was eventually running for mayor of New York City. Um, she was involved in Center for Popular Democracy, where the Randy Weingarten was once on the board as well. It's and Center for, our, our listeners might remember, if they've, if they've got, I guess at this point, a relatively long memory, uh, Center for Popular Democracy was the group that buttonholed, one of its activists buttonholed, um, I want to say it was Senator F then Senator Flake, in the elevator during the Kavanaugh hearings um, in order to try to defeat, you know, in order to try to defeat now Justice Kavanaugh's nomination after the unsubstantiated allegations of misconduct against him came out. Um, you know, the, the, that's kind of who these who these people are. Yeah, and they're also a descendant of Acorn. Like when Acorn got convicted of felony voter fraud and kind of fell apart, you had these chapters. Acorn kind of pioneered this model of it's almost a franchise model like McDonald's, where there's a central organization, but then they this cookie cutter that can create local chapters uh all across the country and acorn was very successful in that uh cpd center for popular democracy picked up where they left off and actually picked up some of acorn's chapters when they were orphaned and they also bring in other unions besides teachers unions and they become this really dramatic force at the local level which is very potent because so few other people are are sh showing up and, and you know at the national level everyone's kind of aware what's going on everyone's voting for the president but in towns and cities and and you know counties across america sometimes these 
uh, highly organized, radical leftist union affiliated groups were the only people showing up. And so it gave them outsized power. And Maya Wiley uh, was the son of or the daughter of a guy named George Alvin Wiley, who was a, a famous activist in the 1960s, who uh, really played a he was involved with like, you know, Cloward and Piven, this idea that they, they were these Columbia University professors that basically he, George Alvin Wiley wanted to get everyone on welfare. But it turned out that his purpose was not just to give people welfare because it helped them. He wanted to intentionally bankrupt New York City so that from the ashes, a new power structure could could take control. So it was a means of basically burning everything down. And then what comes next? I don't know. We'll figure it out. And that is his daughter carried on that that, that legacy. And it's also kind of the CRT legacy. I mean, CRT focuses on, quote, dismantling whiteness, but they, they define whiteness as uh, anything that's dominant, so anything that's just successful and widely used. And so there's a lot of commonalities here in an interesting history where um, that's kind of their, their strategy is just burn stuff down and then we'll figure it out later. You know, that's, that's interesting because, of course, you know, if, if they want to do that, but they're also backed by, like, some of the largest, oldest institutional entities in the United States, the big foundations, uh, you know, the democratic members of the, what they, what the left likes to call the 1% through uh, entities like Arabella, uh, like Arabella Advisors. I know you wrote, wrote on, they, on, on that, um, that network. How, how are they involved in all this? Well, Arabella, so basically I started by looking at CRT in schools, generating a list of literally hundreds of local facing groups that are the activists that the average person would see influencing their towns. And it was so overwhelming. I made charts of it and graphs and it just looked like spaghetti. There was lines going everywhere because they're all connected to each other. The, 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 classic, this, the classic Pepe Silvia wall. Yes. And so the simplest way to understand it was almost all of these these groups were funded by the Kellogg Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, um, sometimes George Soros's foundation, uh, Carnegie. And so most of those are, as you mentioned, these powerful groups that have been around literally for more than 100 years. And New Venture Fund is a more recent development through which they have all coordinated, which really struck me because it's as if a billion dollar foundation isn't powerful enough on its own. It's got to start colluding with other ones. And so by coordinating, everyone's on the same page and they also brought the teachers unions into the fold. And so they had something like they it's almost they almost see they embrace the stereotype of a cartoon villain. They have something called um something called acronym because you know how uh a lot of these political groups have these you, acronyms you, the, those those of those of our listeners with long memories might remember that network is the group that messed up the vote counting of the democratic iowa caucuses in 2020 and, and more specifically within acronym you have shadow shadow inc and that's right, the name of it yeah, Shadow, Shadow Inc. was the group. Was, was that the one that actually, like, officially managed the voting app that didn't work? Yeah. And, and so it's almost this cartoonish boogeyman thing that they've got going on. They've got another thing called the Hub Project, which is exactly bluntly named. I mean, it's a hub where 
all the different leftist groups coordinate behind the scenes. And so there's a level of coordination that is kind of intentionally concealed by people, but when you, they, it gets them all on the same page. And so the foundations, um, I think are, you know, what I wrote is a book about schools, but behind the scenes is the foundations. And when people say, and a lot of people are talking about critical race theory now, when they say, where is critical race theory coming from? It's coming from the, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and there's a really interesting history there, even going back 100 years, where these foundations were from the beginning defined by their fixation on changing society to enact weird racial ideas. And for the first couple decades of the foundations, their whole thing was eugenics. And they eventually had this seven-acre warehouse on Long Island where they were housing um, information on the genes of all the families in America so they could figure out which are undesirables and which should we have breed more. Um, it was this social engineering attitude that came out of this 19th, 20th century progressive view of we're going to make the world a better place through science. But what they viewed as science was just kind of detestable racism. Mm -hmm. So uh, move, moving on from the past to the future, uh, you, you write in the epilogue, uh, I am no longer sure America's public school system can be saved. So what do we do? What's, what do you, you know, what, what, um, what can be done with the, the scale of the, uh, of the size of what Max Eden uh, has called the education deep state that you write about? Uh, you know, how do, how do, how do parents, how do, um, uh, policymakers, how do they push back? Well, I think the first one is just getting involved. I, I, I'm hesitant to say we can't save. There is a deep state. It is difficult that even if you get, you know, say conservative school boards, they're still going to have a superintendent that may be subverting them. But I don't think we can give up or that we should give up. I think you can withdraw your kids from school right away if you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford private school somehow or homeschooling or these pods. Um, but I think we still have a duty to be involved in the public schools because our kids, when they grow up, they're going to be populating a world that's inhabited by public school graduates. And uh, it's really our society that's at stake. You don't want to abandon the public school system uh, completely, at least the governance of it, because that seeds it to. Uh, I mean, I mean that's, argu leaders. that's arguably what conservatives have done for 40 years. And now here we are. Exactly. And so I think it was a big, a big mistake in the past for conservatives to just say, well, I don't really know about public schools because I want school choice. So it doesn't matter. It does matter. Uh, I, I think school choice is the ultimate, uh, only ultimate outcome in a country that has very different ideas about what is preferable. Uh, but it's important to understand when you study this closely, as I have, that even the progressives don't agree on what public school should look like. Some of them want to do essentially busing, where when it comes to race, every school has the same demographics as the community at large. Other people are pushing these ideas like culturally responsive education that essentially means getting all the black kids together and teaching them in a special way that they says works best for their race. And so those are two diametrically opposed ideas that are that are popular on the left. 
And so if even the left can't agree what, what the ideal school looks like, I think that's why the point is let's, let's give people different options and let the money follow the kid. It's just that we can't just say that. I think basically school choice is popular across partisan lines. Strong majorities of both parties want it. If you could get it on a ballot referendum, I think it would pass. But the politicians, the lawmakers aren't going to make that law for us. We'd have to kind of directly take it um, on the on like as a ballot referendum. But in the meantime, I think we've still got to keep showing up at these school board meetings. And that includes people like grandparents whose kids are grown or maybe people who have never had kids. No matter what, you're paying taxes. We're paying $17,000 a year on average per student. And we've got that 36% literacy rate. So, you know, you've got to just be prepared. You've got to be informed. And that's what I've tried to do with this book is um, give people the confidence that they need to go to these school board meetings and do battle with these special interest groups because what they try to do is confuse you with all these acronyms and jargony industry terms and if you don't know what they're saying doesn't make any sense but if you can speak their language you can effectively embarrass them and uh just like shame them into i, I mean this. i mean we, we've got we, we've kind of seen that in some of these school board demonstrations the you know parents who have you know written pretty good speeches and then delivered them and have, you know, kind of, I, I do not like this phrase, but I'm going to use it, gone viral, uh, you know, demonstrating how out of, out of touch some of these school board policymakers are. Yeah, and you can tell how unaccustomed they are to any kind of scrutiny because they go crazy. They try to silence people and... Um, you know, we saw the National School Board Association, of course, call parents domestic terrorists. It's important to note that the National School Board Association is funded by the foundations. And that's one of the techniques that they use is uh, methodically taking over obscure nodes of power. So they want to basically leverage their, their influence. And in the same way that George Soros will essentially pay to have a prosecutor elected, because it's easier to hire one prosecutor who can just ignore laws than it is to secure an entire slate of lawmakers that can control the legislature. If you can control these um, associations that purport to speak on behalf of or set policy for an entire class of people, that's easier than actually um, having all the people that agree with you. And so that, that's been interesting to see so many states quit the National School Board Association, but they essentially have all of these associations, the National Council of Teachers of English and all the other subject matter groups for teachers, the you know, Superintendents Association, they've got a million of these things. And the foundations have for years essentially controlled the education industry that way, going back to Common Core when the Gates Foundation single-handedly uh, imposed Common Core on 42 states. All right. Well, thank you again to Luke Rossiak for joining us. The book title, again, is Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 